Designing Circularity is a four-episode podcast series created for the exhibition Designing Circularity in the Central Market in Hong Kong. The exhibition is initiated by the Consulate General of the Kingdom of the Netherlands in Hong Kong and Macau. The exhibition will showcase proven circular practices in three key areas of the circular economy, fashion, built environment and everyday goods. Hello, I'm your host Oscar Venhuis, and in this episode of Designing Circularity, we're going to talk about everyday goods. My first guest is Daria Birikova, founder of Studio Mextura, a ceramic studio designing around circular ceramics production methods. Next up is Mattia Benini of Precious Plastic, which is an open source plastic recycling community with hundreds of members worldwide. And lastly, I talk with co-founder Tom Landers of Repeat, who has developed a modular and recyclable headphone. Studio Mixtura's founder Daria Birikova is a design alchemist fascinated by reimagining waste into beautiful, sustainable solutions. She believes design is a powerful means to improve life. She starts each project by deeply researching ingredients from production and recycling. This broad approach connects her with diverse industries and experts. Daria collects data, then begins mixing and matchmaking, crafting new narratives around why things are produced as is, why waste accumulates, how it could be sustainably addressed, and designing new products as outcomes. Welcome, Daria. I'm curious how you ended up doing your studies here in the Netherlands. What attracted you to study design here instead of any other place in Europe or the rest of the world? That's a very nice question, actually, because indeed, as you mentioned, um, I studied in Design Academy. And what impressed me a lot is approach of uh, young students and in general Dutch designers to uh, design itself. So I would say that it's not anymore just about creating an aesthetic or let's say a solution for something, but it's more about the questioning the role of designer as it is, why we are doing what we are doing. And that also particularly what interests me that it has so many different cross collaborations going on in each project so that that designer could be collaborating with architects, with the bio designers, with the biochemists, with the engineers. So every project has many, many layers if you talk about Dutch design. So it's not necessarily coming just with one person, but it's pretty much collaboration. And that was also I kept in my project as well. So always trying to find the right people for collaboration to bring projects further. Let's also talk about Mixtura and the method you have developed for circular ceramics production. What can you say about the sustainable approach of tableware? Actually, we designed a very unique method because when um, the project started, uh, one uh, Dutch brand uh, actually asked for my help because they were searching for many years a way how to reuse, uh, in that case, tableware. Because Netherlands is very famous for the secondhand stores and uh, flea markets where people can buy furniture. So people like to buy secondhand things if they are in a good condition. But they couldn't find a person who would be able to create a new life for these products. Because the funny thing is that although people uh, like to buy secondhand things, but if it comes to the tableware, nobody wants to buy, again, white tableware. But we have an abundance of white tableware because that's the general color white. So the question was like, how can we 
reuse it or how can we find a new way to bring life in it because basically what we find out visiting different secondhand stores that eventually at the end of one two years 79 percent of this white table where the people will bring back because it's still in a good condition would be thrown away because no one would no one would buy again white tableware so that was the starting point actually of the project which is highlighted in hong kong and then the experimental part started so of course nobody knew how to do that and it is quite a particular process also behind how to apply the glaze on that kind of tableware actually it's also started with the glazes because the glaze itself that was the actually the initial product because in 2016 uh, in the Netherlands I started collaboration with a recycling company who are processing Dutch waste so let's say recycling of glass paper and general waste so that goes to incineration and then they are able to clean it but they were not let's say having any application in the light industry so they were using these waste streams for example to build roads in the Netherlands but there were no like application within ceramics so many many years of research I would say just after my graduation we started and we patented and designed this glaze which is consisting 60% on Dutch waste and that was actually the interest of the company or the brand in the Netherlands to use it because for them then the story would be complete so they would have the second tableware, which nobody wants to buy again, and that we will bring the new life using this glaze based on waste. So that that was like a nice storyline also for them to explain the consumers so that we are not only reusing the white tableware, but we also actually trying to glaze it in a sustainable uh, sustainable way using waste. When you talk about ceramics and the glazing of this, what are some of the properties or challenges you have to overcome and address if you want to reuse and make it recyclable? Yes, yeah, we had quite some challenges, of course. One thing is that when you have uh, white tableware, which end up in the secondhand store, it's very difficult to define what kind of ceramic it is. Is it porcelain? Is it stoneware? Is it earthenware? If it glazed white... Uh, you have to have a, a certain knowledge already about the tableware to understand or distinguish what is what. And the process of reglazing, uh, it's very particular because you have to also know which temperature would you bake uh, your already glazed and baked ceramics. Because you start not from the fresh, let's say, bisque product, which they use in the manufacturing, which is very easy to absorb the glaze, it's very porous. But we are using already sort of a very ready product, which is, has almost no way to absorb or to get uh, contact with, uh, with the, let's say, surface would not uh, absorb any liquid. So if you spray another layer of glaze on top, it will be just running off it. So it was a very particular way we were trying to find out how to make the glaze uh, stick and which temperatures would you then glaze it. Because the risk is that if by chance, you select it not correctly, you can have like one piece which will have to be fired much lower temperature. And that means it can explode in the kiln. So there are many like particularities that we had to take in consideration. We even made for people who were working in the, in the secondhand stores because then we were selecting the items. What would we choose? So what can go for the reuse and what cannot? So that was also like we had to make sort of poster 
with the different indications, the thickness of material, how wide should it be, this kind of things. Yeah, that was, I think, the biggest challenge. So the challenge was to identify and select the right ceramic, earthenware, stoneware or porcelain properties. Is that right? I think selection. I think to write first the good selection of products because of course then as a brand you also look into the shapes, what is modern, what consumer could also appreciate to buy again and the glazing process itself too. So let's say to spray and apply the glaze on the surface. So the two challenges And this selection process of shifting and identifying the different types of tableware categories, is that done manually? Yeah, it's still manually. Uh, Of course, uh, there is also a certain percentage would still be wrong because it's just sometimes very difficult to distinguish even by a skilled person what is porcelain or what is faience or what is earthenware. Earlier you said, I think that 79% of tableware is being discarded. From all the different types of tableware that you mentioned, do you happen to know which is thrown away most of the time? I think that mainly it will be still stoneware and porcelain for the reasons that I think in general, if you go to industrial manufacturing of tableware for the um, food safety and let's say for the dishwasher, let's say that people can use it in dishwasher, they would anyway be made of porcelain or stoneware, mainly stoneware. So... In percentage, of course, what was, let's say, left apart, it was not so much. So still majority was what we needed. So that was a point to continue. Otherwise, it will already at that time be no go. Because if we would have so less tableware to go with, then, of course, it gets too complicated. So we still were managing to create some, let's say, quite some tableware that we could reuse and replace. We actually jump straight into the patented solution you developed and you make it sound really easy. But how long was this journey of testing, research and development? I think it took us two, three years from the moment when we had the first conversation of, is it even possible? Because nobody wanted to do that. And then to the first uh, prototypes and tryouts, and then eventually to find the right suppliers, but because you had to have a bit a bigger secondhand store. So not just uh, pick small ones, but go to, let's say, even I would call them like a distribution centers where the all secondhand things are first arriving and then they are distributed on the smaller stores, for example. So it was really a process of two, three years, I would say, yes, before they could actually run the first production and launch it in different stores. That's really phenomenal. So what made you decide to take on this project? Because what I understood is that most people either said it was not possible or they just rejected the project. (laughs) A challenge. I think I like a challenge. And for me, it was also interesting because the glaze that we patented, what I mentioned is called actually Ford's glaze because Ford's glaze uh, is a material which consists 60% of waste And we are applying it on the facade bricks, on the tiles. And we were also looking for actually application on the tableware because ceramics, it's not such a wide industry where you can find the product. So for us, it was really interesting to try it out also on tableware, although it was not a very conventional way of making tableware. So they were asking us actually at another level of complexity to use it on already glazed items. But we were just trying to figure out if our glaze could work with tableware as well. So what have you observed when you talk with consumers who buy stoneware, porcelain or any other type about your circular methods? I think in general behind every process 
I would invite every consumer of our, let's say, modern consumer to see what production looks like. I think that we are so much detached from the process which stands behind each product that we devaluate it immediately because we have so much offer. But if every consumer will see like actually what it takes to make one cup or one plate from the starting point of coring the materials, bringing them to the uh, manufacturer, preparing them to manufacture, how much errors there are in the line and how, I mean, how much it costs actually to make one plate or one cup. I think this is a very, very tangible topic, which I think can also turn this problem of overconsumption upside down. Because once you see what it takes to make one, I think you start reconsider of throwing things away and maybe to buy also things with better quality. I think that sometimes people ask me why it costs, for example, this money or why it costs so much. And then you're trying to explain actually what it takes to make one. And then people maybe not immediately change their mind, but they get more curious to know more about the process. So I think that is very, very important to keep remembering also as designers what it takes <laughs> to, to make an object or to make an idea or a service. And what can you say about what you exhibit here in Hong Kong that people and visitors should know? Yes, I think a fun fact uh, about this particular tableware which presented in Hong Kong is that when we presented it in the Dutch Design Week, of course we used Dutch second-hand tableware. Some people were coming to me and they were recognizing the shapes. They said, oh, this is from my grandmother. I had exactly this one. But now it's green. Oh, it's so it's so modern. It looks so nice. I mean, that it was a very positive feedback that you can see that people look at, uh, with the other eyes on an object once it's like combined differently or set up differently. I think that's also a power of design that we can actually turn a product with the right storytelling, with the right approach. Uh, you can get people appreciate and like the product so that it also kind of remind them on something and it's not necessarily old usually. So it, it's just how you look at it. Many thanks for your time today, Daria of Nextura. Thank you so much for uh, for your podcast. I'm really was happy to answer your questions. Mattia Bernini, director of Precious Plastic, talks about the open source plastic recycling community. The purpose is to reduce plastic waste through recycling biodegradable materials and zero waste lifestyles. According to Precious Plastic, people are the key to fixing the plastic mess. And progress comes through millions taking small steps and we shouldn't rely on miracle technologies. They combine people, machines, platforms and knowledge to build an alternative global recycling system run by people around the world. Hello Mattia, let's begin by talking about what makes precious plastic so different from other plastic businesses. Because there are so many initiatives who focus on the recycling of plastic. What can you say about this? Precious plastic is drastically different in the sense that it takes plastic recycling and it transforms it from a big scale manufacturing that is only available to big organizations. Uh, potentially sometimes not even countries can afford to have a recycling system or facility. And instead, giving the people the means of recycling plastic. This is transformational. That was never done before you know, we started working on this. For me, that was really the crucial part, giving the tools to people to tackle the big plastic waste problem. For me, this is where precious plastic is interesting, right? So taking from a centralized system that is clearly not working, 
and offering something that is drastically different, which is a decentralized, small scale, highly resilient system that anyone can tap into and offer their energies, talent, love, care, creativity to fix this problem that is affecting all of us on this planet. You refer to a term of decentralization of plastic. What exactly do you mean by this? And explain how this is different from conventional or traditional approaches of plastic recycling. We're kind of a, I would say, strange organization. You know, we, we sort of innovate on small-scale plastic recycling. We create machines to recycle plastic in different ways, different processes. But what's really unique about precious plastic is that it's a fully free and open source project, which means that anyone in the planet, you can go on our website, you can download our download kit and there you will find all the information that you need to start recycling plastic. No patents, no memberships, none of that. We just want everyone on this planet to start recycling plastic. So this makes it for a very decentralized and resilient ecosystem because we don't know who starts recycling plastic. We don't even know the full extent of this movement because anyone can go on our website and download all the files and start recycling plastic. So in that sense, it's fully decentralized because We don't control who starts. We don't really manage it too much beyond a certain extent. And we we are not involved in any ways with the people that are actually recycling on the ground. People have an idea. We offer tools, knowledge, and solutions. You know, they use those systems and infrastructure to create the projects, make their money, make their business, and recycle plastic through that. So when people go to your website, we'll publish the link on designingcircularity.org and in this podcast description as well, and download the toolkit for free, what can they expect to find in this free toolkit? Yeah, so now the download kit after eight years is kind of grown into this big, I think it's 800 megabytes (laughs) package of information. And that's really like, it's your journey from zero to hero to become a small scale micro recycler. So we try to make it as simple as possible for anyone to start recycling. So it goes anything from, you know, explaining you what the different plastic types are to how to collect plastic with different tools for that, posters that you can print and give to your local cafes to collect plastic and so on, to more technical CAD files, 3D drawings, and everything that you need to actually build the machines. Plus also a bunch of molds that you can replicate in order to make products from recycled plastic. Additionally, uh, something that we, we've implemented back in 2020 with version four is a series of business tools that really help you to think through your business so that you're not only starting your recycling pro- project, but you're actually starting a business that enables you to do this the whole time, every day, and also employ people along the way. Now the download kit is really much paired to what we call the Precious Plastic Academy. And this is a series of 60 plus video tutorials where we really walk you through the entire process of learning this new craft, because it's really like a craft, right? We used to, you know, we have a bunch of crafts working with wood, marble, whatever, but we never really seen plastic as a material that we can work with. And so we really much take you through the journey from really zero. So if you had the time, the interest, You know, if you go on the Pressure Plastic Academy, you can really nail the craft. And through time and experience and failures, anyone can become a small-scale micro-recycler and tackle the, the big plastic waste problem together. And when I download the free toolkit of Precious Plastic, what do I do when I get stuck or have a question? Do you have a community as well that I can reach out to? So we have a, a peer-to-peer marketplace that enables people to that are making machines to sell these machines. Uh, additionally, we have a Discord where you know you can ask help to the community. 
We used to have forums. We paused that because it was going to be too messy. We also have a software project that we develop in-house. We call it the community platform. And that's where you find the community. That's where people put themselves on the map. That's where people share how they tackle the big plastic waste problem. So we used to be us internally, and now we want to enable more all of these tens of thousands of people that are now you know, dedicating their lives to recycled plastic to share how to do things. Because the plastic waste problem is big and diverse and global, and we need many different solutions to tackle this problem from many different angles. And can you also speak more about the reach or impact of the precious plastic community? How global or what is the scope of this project since you began Precious Plastic? We just actually ran an impact survey, which gave us some really interesting insights. <laughs> For the past five years, believe it or not, we never had like a download count on our download kit. And we've been starting to count to track it since 2020. And we had about, about 400,000 downloads. That's three years. But I would say, you know, when we launched version two back in 2016, we had you know, hundreds of millions of impressions on the website and the YouTube went crazy. That's really what got us on the global scene because it was a novel idea. No one has heard about small-scale recycling. The whole plastic waste problem was starting to become a media thing. And when it comes to the impact, as I said, you know, like we are a fully open source organization, so anyone can start. They don't have to tell us anything. They don't have to give, give us their emails, nothing. They can just start. And that's how we want it. We don't want to put any barrier, right, to have people to start. So it's kind of hard to understand, you know, how many people are actually working on precious plastic. So on our community platform, on our map, we have over 8,000 organizations that have put themselves on the map. So this is 8,000 projects that have either a machine or are using some of precious plastic processes and knowledge. Now, from these 8,000 people, we just run this survey to ask them, you know, what is your impact? And the number they came back are quite astonishing, I would say. So from these 8,000 people that are on the map, which is not the entirety of the community, a little over 500 entered the, the survey. They recycled over a million tons of plastic globally, fully decentralized. And together, the total revenue of this project is over $36 million. And we're looking at about 25,000 people involved, of which 11,000 are employed getting a salary and there's about 15,000 which are volunteers and these are great numbers but you know we estimate that this is about five to seven percent of the actual on the ground impact of precious plastic that's a really unbelievable achievement Mattia what I'm interested in as well is what users need to look out for or be aware of when they begin to collect plastic with your precious plastic toolkit one of the things that I keep on seeing, it's quite problematic, is that people recycle plastic and they think they can just continue to consume plastic as if they would be making up for that. But it is exactly by understanding the process of recycling that we should, as a community, reduce the amount of plastic that we use in the first place. Because, I mean, I'm going to tell you clear, there's no ways that we can recycle the plastic that is consumed, that is produced and consumed in 2023. Yeah, that's a bit of a sort of a bit of education that we need to do more, you know. Additionally, I would say something that a bit of a complaint that we got from people over the years is that at Precious Plastic, we make it look so easy. You know, we have all these beautiful videos with funny music in the background. And I think more the reality of things is that you're going to have to dedicate your life to this. You've been working on this open source and decentralized concept for the last 10 years. So what's next for the Precious Plastic project? I would say first things first, we have to ourselves get our things together, right? So we have basically invested 10 years of our lives to make sure that people can start their recycling business successfully. 
we kind of did good on that. A lot of people are now making a lot of money. We have, you know, even million dollar companies that are built on precious plastic. However, we never invested enough time to make our project sustainable. So we are now really witnessing a tragedy of the commons. Everyone is taking, but no one is really giving back to the project. So the focus this year, 2023, is really to, you know, set up a full-fledged fundraising team. Already have a team together. And that's, I would say, number one priority for the project, because unless we can sustain ourselves and the team, very hard to keep offering these solutions to the planet. So if anyone listening uh, to the podcast is interested to support this open source movement, uh, we have an open collective page. You can search for plastic. We have Patreon. So there's many ways that you can support the movement. We have sort of a midterm goal vision and a long-term vision. So the midterm is to decentralize the generation of knowledge. So 2015, no one is talking about small-scale recycling. We had to do all the heavy lifting, hard work of, you know, R&D and developing this machine and really thinking, even inventing this machine, right? Because no one was doing that. And by now, 2023, fast forward eight, nine years, we have thousands of engineers and designers spread around the world, improving the machine, inventing new machines, and really sort of developing the technology further. So now I think we can kind of step back and just document amazing machines that are developed around the world to tackle potentially slightly different uh, problems. And I think that way we can really scale how the technology evolves and develops. One thing that we've been also tinkering a lot uh, within the team, have a precious plastic that is owned by the community. Blockchain technology, Web3, it's all going to be very much possible within the next few years. We want to be able to have a precious plastic that is owned by the project that are using it globally. They can have a stay in governance and how is decisions are made within precious plastic. So and, and also own a part of it. So that if precious plastic grows, their funds grow with that. So that's like a shared incentive to make sure the precious plastic keeps on scaling and growing. It was great to hear your journey, Mattia, and many thanks for talking to me today. All the best with Precious Plastic. Thank you, Oscar. It was a big pleasure. Had a lot of fun. My last guest is Tom Leenders. He's the co-founder of Repeat, a modular headphone supply and repair startup in Utrecht in the Netherlands. They actively contribute to reducing e-waste. Every year we throw away over 50 billion kilos of electrical appliances and because we buy more and more devices that we use for a few years at most. This makes e-waste the fastest growing waste stream. In 2050, 120 billion kilos will end up in a waste stream each year. A huge waste mountain full of useful components and valuable materials such as gold and silver. Hello Tom and welcome to Designing Circularity podcast. Just before we started this recording, you mentioned that you were throwing away many headphones during your time as a student. Why was that? I think this was like 12, maybe 15 years ago. There were no Bluetooth headphones on the market yet. So all the headphones were wired with pretty long cables. So all the cables broke during the first year or spreading tears down. And then you needed to throw away the complete headphone because it wasn't repairable. And that frustrated us a lot because 95% of the headphone still works, but you need to throw it away anyways. That really resonates with me as well because I have a similar issue and experience when using headphones. So what was the driving force or reason behind Repeat Audio that you co-founded with Doris? 
Yeah, basically it had two reasons. One of them, it was born out own frustration about uh, we, we threw away a lot of headphones. But the other one was that we came across the concept of the circular economy. And we found it really interesting because you can combine a business model with uh, sustainability. And before that, sustainability was a pretty vague topic for me. I thought, okay, how, how are you building a business around it? Uh, what's the interest of the user regarding sustainability? And with the circular economy, you really implement it in your business. And if you do it in the right way, I think you can make money with it. So me and Doris found that concept really interesting. And then we want to combine the, the principles of the circular economy with the frustration of throwing away a lot of headphones. And that's how we found it repeat. So over time, you developed many prototypes or minimum viable products or MVPs. Can you elaborate and expand more on how you developed your products? I think we produced it after two and a half years. So the first two years, it was complete company was based on business model development. So are people willing to pay for performance instead of ownership? Because we started with a subscription model. So people paid five euros per month and they didn't own the headphone. We owned the headphone. So all the materials and the, and repairs were our responsibility. So we needed to test that. And the first two years, we tested a lot in the market via just like, like with renders and interviews and building websites and see if there's traction uh, on certain topics and after we knew okay there is some traction regarding uh, pay for performance then we started building the product around it now let's also talk about the modularity of the headphones because this is one of the features of your products you mentioned that the first two years you focused on the market fit why was the recyclable materials not the center of attention because the impact uh, with a headphone is not based on the type of materials you put in, but on the lifetime of usage. If you extend the lifetime with two or three years, because you can replace and repair parts, then your impact increases a lot, or yeah, it goes down a lot. That's why we, we needed to see, okay, how do we design a headphone which is repairable? How do we design a headphone which is modular? So we designed things around that. But mainly the, the focus was finding the business model, finding clients, finding a target group which is interesting in a more sustainable product. That's a great approach because most businesses spend a lot of time and maybe sometimes too much time on product development instead of market and user research and product fit. I think that that's most of the things go wrong with sustainable companies is they focusing too much on the sustainable part of the business and not focusing on the value proposition for the client. They end up or with a too highly priced product, which is sustainable, but doesn't fit the needs of the customer, or they end up with a lower quality perspective and a sustainable product. But again, people don't want to buy the product. So we did a lot of interviews with founders, which had uh, some kind of sustainable company. And they all said, okay, if you want to scale, find a value proposition, which is scalable and don't focus on sustainability part in the beginning, because those problems are solvable in the end. If you have a, a bigger client base, if money comes in, you can just do more research and development and make the product more sustainable. You've been able to make modular headphones. What more can you say about how you are developing your circular business? Can you speak more about the phases of your business strategy? We, we say we, we do it in three parts. There's firstly, find a customer who is willing to pay for a modular headphone, then design a modular headphone. That's the phase right now. And also provide repairs 
and retrieve the broken parts to the company right now. So build the chain. And the next step will be, okay, how can we fully close the cycle? So we, for instance, we use a mono stream of plastic, so only ABS. When we want to reuse the plastic parts again, we can easily do that. And also the amount of glue in the product as less as possible. So you can easily take out certain components, replace it, recycle it, blah, blah, blah. What else have you learned about circular design and how to create a business where circular economy is at the heart of your business? I think you should design it in such a way you don't need to educate people on it. Because people are just used to normal products. And if you want to change that vision, that is super hard. And it costs you a lot of marketing and branding money. So I think you should design it in such a way it's completely understandable for the client. So people don't feel it as a modular product. They just perceive it as a normal headphone because when it's put together, it just performs like a normal headphone. It's super easy to put together. You don't need a screwdriver. You don't need a soldering or whatever. And when something breaks, you also don't need to fix the battery yourself we we do that for you so the convenience of that should be really high and i think if you don't do that then it will be perceived as a too technical product and a lot of people would say okay this is too technical it's not for me i will choose a normal product and again that's not scalable so if you designing a sustainable business and you go for that type of product you really need to know okay is the big market ready for such a shift if not designed in such a way that it fit that big target audience. That's a excellent market approach. And can you speak more about the impact of e-waste and how this headphone is trying to address this by minimizing its footprint? We know that there's about uh, 50 million e-waste per year thrown away. And regarding headphones, it's around uh, 80 million headphones per year. But that's an estimation because we don't know the exact numbers. But what we do know, if you extend the lifetime of a headphone with two years, the life cycle analysis or your CO2 impact is divided by two or three, depending on the design of the headphone. So you must more focus on repairability and extend the product lifetime instead of putting more sustainable materials in the headphone. That's one thing we learned uh, during those four years. That makes a lot of sense. So when you offer repair services, you must have planned the logistics as well. Can you talk more about how you have set up the recycling and repair services of your modular headphones? This is also something we needed to find out how to do it. We, we work together with uh, social workspaces. So people with uh, a small disability or who couldn't find a normal job, we can combine them together and they repair the headphone or put them in a box, whatever. But we found out that repairing the headphone is also sometimes quite uh, difficult. So we have w one people, one person on team who's doing that, but not like the, the whole day. We wait like when we have like 100 or 150 broken headphones and then see we will repair that in three, four, five days. But the team is not that big because we have like an investor on board, which is a an production partner and they do a lot of work for us in terms of logistics, stuff at the factory. So that's why we can keep a small team compared to normal business. I think we, I think we were a core team of uh, eight and uh, flexible part of like 15 pe people. Beside the headphones, what else do you have in the pipeline? 
First, we need more sales channels. So we're looking into a big, finding a good retail partner to go also abroad to Europe. I think Germany will be the first market to focus on. But together, we also want to improve the product portfolio. So we're developing through wireless earplugs at the moment and make that one modular. Many thanks, Tom of Repeat Audio in Utrecht and all the best with your new product launch. Great. That's it. And many thanks for listening to Designing Circularity. More information about circular design and circular economy can be found on www.designingcircularity.org.